You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Peace and blessings for Allah be upon you all. Welcome once again here in Drive Time Show. You're listening to Aniko Rahman, and I have joined by another co-presenter here in the uh, West Islam Studio, London, Dr. Tariq Bajwa. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Waalaikum assalam warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon all of you. Thank you very much. So, uh, as our listeners know, that uh, we come every evening and we discuss different topics in two hours, four to six. Today, we'll be discussing two very important topics. One, you know, disproportional impact of cost of living crisis. We'll be discussing that in depth for this uh, particular topic. You can call us on 0208-687-7878 and you can share your views uh, with us, with our listeners. And you can visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Today, as you know, we are tackling a crucial topic that's often missed in regular discussions, the extra you know, pressure of a rising cost of living on people with disabilities especially. And uh, in a world where everything is getting more expensive, those with disabilities are facing challenges that are harder than most of us can imagine. Uh, in this episode, we are doing, or we are, we are diving into how to increasing cost of necessary things like medical care, uh, you know, special equipment, and sports services are putting a heavy load on disabled individuals and their families. We're going to look at why this is happening and what if you know, what it actually means for their day-to-day lives. So join us as we explore these issues, hear from professionals and discuss what can be done to make a difference. And we'll be having, you know, professional guests with us who will be speaking on it and giving us more insight of this topic. So as we begin today's topic, it's important to first acknowledge a fundamental truth disabilities do not define a person's worth or capabilities. Across cultures and communities, we see countless individuals with disabilities leading fulfilling lives, contributing to society in meaningful ways. They remind us that while disabilities may present certain challenges, they do not limit a person's potential to achieve greatness. Um, here I, I must remind again that actually we are dealing with the, the topic today is disproportional impact of the cost of living crisis uh, with uh, on people with disabilities. So this is a particularly associated topic with the people with disabilities, how people are coping with um, the increased cost of living. So in many societies, there is a growing recognition of the need for inclusivity and equal opportunities for those with disabilities. Efforts are being made to ensure that every individual, regardless of their physical or mental challenges, has the chance to participate fully in community life. This inclusive approach is not just a modern concept. It has roots in various cultural and religious traditions. A shining example of this can be found in Islamic history. Consider the story of a companion of the Holy Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, Hazrat Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, may Allah be pleased with him. He was a 
blind companion of the Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Despite his blindness, Abdullah, may Allah be pleased with him, was one of the first people to embrace Islam. His dedication to the Prophet, may peace be upon him, and zeal for learning the Quran were remarkable. Recognizing his abilities and devotion, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, appointed Abdullah, may Allah be pleased with him, as one of the muazzins in Medina. So muazzin is a person who, who calls for the prayers at the time of prayers. Um, and this role was a significant mark of trust and respect. Moreover, on multiple occasions, the Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, entrusted the entire city of Medina to Abdullah's uh, care in his absence. May Allah be pleased with him. So this act by the Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is a powerful example of inclusion and shows the respect and dignity afforded to people with disabilities in Islam. It teaches us an important lesson never to underestimate individuals based on their disabilities, as they may possess greater talents and capabilities deserving of leadership and responsibility. You're very much right, Dr. Iqbal. When I think, uh, you know, I've been discussing uh, the topic with disability and helping, they got, helping them out. Of course, we're discussing the rising cost, but the, you know, the examples you've mentioned of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and we see in Islam especially, you know, in Islam, it's it, it's uh, uh, not compulsory, I should say, it's, it's recommendable that one should visit people who are disabled, who are in need. And I think, Community can help each other. There are some things which we cannot buy. You know, if we are, we try to do everything or solve the matters through, you know, the rising money and through the, uh, to pay, to, to, through, you know, paying somebody. It's not, uh, you know, easy to do that for long term. And that's why the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, created a society that one should take care of one another. If we carry on, you know, now uh, to address the pressing concern, the rising cost of healthcare and essential support, a challenge that's becoming increasingly you know, daunting for individuals with disabilities as we navigate through this economic landscape where healthcare expenses are outpacing economic growth. The impact is accurately felt by those requiring regular medical care and support. And we have had uh, some guests who has mentioned that how difficult it is to get, uh, you know, the appointment or get seen by the doctors because the numbers has increased so much that there are people who are in need. They are actually suffering and they cannot get or can be seen uh, to a doctor when they are needed. And according to, you know, Health Watch, a worrying trend is emerging where the cost of living is becoming a significant barrier to healthcare, especially for most vulnerable, including disabled individuals. They often require, you know, specialized healthcare service such as, uh, you know, routine medical appointments, physical therapy, mental health support, and specialized equipment with the rising cost in these areas. Affordability is becoming a grave concern. When we discuss about insurance coverage, you know, often a crucial gateway to healthcare services falls short in adequately covering the needs of disabled individuals. The World Health Organization reports a concerning gap is in, in insurance coverage for the healthcare expenses of people with disability. So, you know, uh, if, if we carry on, you know, a cost of essential equipment like wheelchair, hearing aid, and mobility aids 
has seen a sharp increase. For instance, the National Disability Authority reports a surge in the prices of you know, assistive technology and devices, pushing them beyond the reach of many who need them most. Obviously, this uh, financial burden extends beyond physical health, you know, whatever the disabilities you have. But if you are, you know, upon, you know, further mm. um, people who are already disabled, uh, disabled, even, you know, the normal people, the physically who are okay, mentally they are okay, but they are feeling the stress and strain of the financial crisis at the moment. People are suffering generally. It's very, very difficult to pay the bills even, and even um, those who are considered to be like a, um, in the group which is uh, earning like middle incomes, they they are also at stress because of the financial, uh, the cost of living increase, um, which has happened during this period. And so particularly those people who, um, you know, do, they have special needs. So they, they need all these equipments, which if their cost is high, like, mm. you know, you, you, you need a wheelchair, you need a hearing aid, you need a mobility aid, particularly. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, yeah, it's difficult, difficult thing because most of them actually depend on some charities who, who provide them these ones. But if they have to buy themselves, uh, it is it's a great financial burden, which, which is beyond, obviously, their... Um, affordability. The National Alliance on Mental Illness highlights the profound mental um, uh, health impact of these economic strains. The stress associated with managing increased healthcare costs is a major contributor to anxiety and depression among disabled individuals. I suppose we have our, yes, our first uh, guest. Yes, we have our first guest with us, uh, Dan White, uh, who is Policy and Campaigns Officer at Disability Rights UK. His current area of work focuses cost of living and disability. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, Dan. Thank you very much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me on. I hope you can hear me okay. Yes, I can hear you. Thank you once again. To start off then, uh, you know, firstly, can you tell us more about Disability Rights UK? What are the aims and missions of the charity? Well, Disability Rights UK is what is known as the DPO, which is um, Disabled People's Organisations, which means... It is run by disabled people, for disabled people all over the country. And the aim is to make society more inclusive and to make sure everyone who has a disability, whether it be a physical disability or a hidden disability, or even the person who cares for that disabled person, has equal rights completely and is on a sound financial footing to lead the life they lead. So what are the primary barriers or challenges that individuals with disability faces in managing the increased cost of living? Well, as, as, as your, um, your, your, your fellow guest has said, mainly at the minute, it is heating and energy. Um, disabled people, as, as we've heard, use a lot more energy. Mm-hmm. We have wheelchairs to charge, ceiling track hoists to charge. We have um, equipment that we use, ventilators, through the lifts. All this stuff draws energy. Um, disabled people are making horrible choices at the minute about what pieces of essential equipment they're going to be turning off because they don't want to be using that amount of power because mm. they don't want to be paying these huge bills. And the cost of living payments from the government have not risen this year. So they are pretty much worthless anyway, unfortunately, and in terms mm. of financial support. And they're not doing anything to alleviate this deepening, deepening poverty, which I'm seeing day in, day out in the community. 
Well, much right. You know, one of the things we were discussing, there are some charities who are helping, helping them out. So what existing support system, you know, are in place to assist individuals with disability, you know, in, in navigating the financial challenges associated with the cost living crisis? Well, the, the biggest problem is, is is the DWP itself, the Department for Work and Pensions. It, it mm. is a, a huge organisation which, unfortunately, disabled people find very, very hard to traverse. I find it very hard to traverse. It's, it's not really there to be helpful. It's not really there to assist you. It's a very cold place mm. for people to call, and they don't get the information they want. People are made to wait a long time for the first receipt of benefits, People can't get through, phone lines aren't accessible, so they have to turn to the local charities, the local disabled people's organisations. But what we're finding is that these organisations themselves in a cost of living crisis are very much stretched financially and can't give that support they need. That's why we see so many disabled people now using warm banks, you know, like libraries or church halls where they can go and spend all day just keeping warm for a cup of tea. But the information is very piecemeal for disabled people. There's not a lot out there for us to find. All we can do as an organisation is take those calls and try and direct them as much as many as the other charities do. Mm, very much right. You know, as a policy and campaigns officer at Disability Rights UK, could you share some of the key policy issues that uh, your organisation is currently advocating uh, you know, for to address the cost-living challenges faced by people with disabilities? Absolutely. But the first and major thing is income. What we're calling for is a benefits rise, not just in line with inflation, but a benefits rise that's going to put financial, that's going to put disabled people on an equal financial footing. In other words, the government has to realise that the outgoings of the disabled community and the care community as well, that's very much involved in it, are so much more than, I hate to say the word, than ordinary families. They have to realise that the outgoings financially are more. So we need more income. It's it's not a disabled person's fault that mm-hmm. they can't have a job in society today because society is very much not built to be accessible. So that makes things really, really hard for disabled people to find employment. So we need to have a bigger income from benefits. Benefits is not a dirty word at all. Benefits there are to support people. And if they're failing to support people, then there's something obviously wrong with the issue. So the main thing we're pushing for is a livable amount of benefits to be paid for disabled people as well as better cost of living payment support as well as an overhaul of the dwp department of work and pensions yeah you are much right uh, you know looking ahead what do you see as the main challenges regarding the cost of living for individuals with disability are there any you know positive developments or you know promising initiatives that give hope for improving the financial well-being of disability community well, the best thing, obviously, was I think it was uh, earlier on this year when Ofgem finally enacted a ban on the forced installation of pre-payment meters in houses because prior to that, people, a lot of disabled people who were failing to keep up with their energy bills were having pre-payment meters forced into the home, which is obviously a, a meter that you go to the shop, you pay £20, you come back, you put it on the meter. But what we were finding was that disabled people, because they couldn't afford the heating, were not even going to buy those vouchers. So they weren't even topping up the prepayment meters, so they were living in the cold. So it was good that collectively, ourselves and many other charities and organizations worked to basically make Ofgem ban the forced installation of prepayment meters. So that was a one win that we had on this. Unfortunately, it's only the one win we've got. We're still, still pushing and pushing government, 
and energy firms to better their policies in supporting for disabled customers. But the biggest problem we have at the minute is we are now into our sixth day of having no minister for disabled people. Tom Persglove was taken out of that position six days ago, and there is no minister mm -hmm. in place for disabled people. So we, as an organisation, have absolutely no one to talk to. There is no one in government representing the country's 14 million disabled people. And that is an absolute shocker. That's a worrying situation, isn't it? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dan, for joining us today. I hope you know our listeners have benefited from this and understood the problem is going on. And they, I hope they do understand, but they have a better understanding now. Uh, thank you, Dan, for joining us today. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Have a nice evening. Well, thank you very much for letting me come on again. I love coming on this station. It's yeah. wonderful. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, Dan White. I think as, um, yeah, he has highlighted the situation, hmm. which many people do not realize that um, you know, what is the state of affairs? Yeah, of course, you know, the government has to balance, and that's why this DWT, uh, DWP, DWP, this yeah. is the uh, Works and Pensions Department, they they have to balance it out because they don't want people to be, um, you, you know, claiming a disability benefit while, while they are not disabled. So they have to make sure the people who are claiming they are the rightful people who need it. But once they need it, if they are not able to to provide them enough so that they can survive respectably, and uh, you know they, they, they do not go to the extremes where they're suffering from cold. And then mm. of course, you know, if you, if you look at it, the cold can lead to illnesses, and then that would be a burden on the NHS again. So they have to balance it out, and I think it's a, it's a good thing that uh, we have brought up uh, Dan White, who, who is helpful to, in highlighting um, this, and uh, many of the people who are responsible, and they can make a difference, uh, who would be able to listen to do, and maybe they can, they can uh, raise their voice and and the disabled people, they can be helped in this way. Yeah, very much right. I think he's mentioned the number of 14 million. I was just checking. It was you know, 14 or more than 14 million people are disabled. I think proper, uh, you know, setup has is needed to protect them and help them out in a proper way. Now we're going to move to our next guest, Daniel Jennings, uh, who is with us. Daniel, uh, you know, Daniel, the lead at Epilepsy Actions Policy and Campaigns Work, lobbying MPs, government and the other organization to improve the lives of people with epilepsy. This includes challenging policies that are navigate, uh, you know, negatively affecting people with epilepsy and pushing for change to make sure that people with epilepsy get the help, support and treatment they need. So, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, Daniel, for joining. Thank you very much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Daniel, to start off, uh, you know, are there specific challenges related to the cost of living that are high, you know, uh, high to the bar for those managing epilepsy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that people with epilepsy have one of the lowest employment rates uh, amongst all disability conditions. So this means that there are more people with, with epilepsy that rely on benefits. Uh, and for the longest time, th those benefits haven't uh, risen in line with inflation. Um, and in, uh, in addition, we know that, um, for example, people on universal credit are getting uh, a, a cost of living payment this winter, but the, the payment for people on disability benefits like personal independence, 
in independence payments hasn't been uh, matched this year, so that means people are losing out on £150 extra that they received last winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and on average, people with disabilities face extra costs of, of £583 a month due to their disability. So losing out on, on that, the, the benefits not rising with inflation, that cost of living payment not being there anymore, that makes, makes a huge difference to people. Um, and even when people with epilepsy are in employment, we know that they're paid on average around uh, 11.8% less than non-disabled employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those things add up and, and we know that stress, lack of sleep, severe temperatures and missing meals are some of the most common seizure triggers for people with epilepsy. Uh, and, and that's led to, to more people with epilepsy having more seizures as a result of, of the stress of dealing with the cost of living crisis, of not being able to afford meals, of not being able to afford to put their heating on. Yeah, that's a, that's a very um, dismal situation. So are there challenges individuals with epilepsy face in accessing or uh, utilizing financial services? And what changes on both a local and national scale could be made to these services so they are more inclusive and accommodating? Well, yeah, I mean, we know that um, some people with epilepsy struggle to successfully apply for disability benefits like personal independence. Uh, independence payments um, and a lot of that is due to the lack of understanding around the condition and the impact it has on people's daily lives um, so really we need more benefit advisors who have an understanding and awareness of epilepsy as well as um, specific employment support for people with epilepsy to, to get them into work where possible um, we know, I mean, the government announced recently some support to get more disabled people into work, um, but the measures they announced were more about threatening sanctions and the withdrawal of benefits rather than providing um, support to support people into work. Um, people with epilepsy face kind of very specific barriers to finding employment and staying in work, um, and we need extra support to, to address those barriers and, and really address the attitudes of some employers as well. Um, and Epilepsy Action, we, we offer training and um, we have an employment toolkit as well that can help uh, employers understand epilepsy and address some of the, the misconceptions and lack of understanding around the condition. All right. Okay. Yeah, of course, I mean, that is also related to the stigma, which is, you know, surrounding epilepsy. So how does the stigma surrounding epilepsy impact the financial well-being of individuals living with the condition? And what role can advocacy play in reducing this, this stigma? Well, yeah, I mean, there is unfortunately still a lot of stigma around the condition, um, and it's one of the main reasons why the employment rate for people with epilepsy is so low, and again, why some people with with epilepsy are are not able to access support through disability benefits because of that lack of understanding and and stigma. Um, We have worked with the DWP and the different benefit providers in the past, and, and that has helped kind of see the levels of success Um, in people with epilepsy applying for disability benefits increase. Um, But now we want to do more work uh, with employers as well to help improve the attitudes that they have towards people with epilepsy, again, to make sure that more people with the condition can get into and stay in work as well. Um, And and we as a charity want to uh, highlight some of the support available to people with epilepsy. I mean, I I mentioned the support we offer through the training and and the toolkit, but there are government schemes as well, such as access to work, which can provide financial support for employers and employees, paying for transport to work, reasonable adjustments, and specialised equipment as well. And I think access to work actually is a, is a really good scheme. 
um, but not many people are aware of it. Um, and we and the government as well need to do more to, to kind of make sure that people are aware of, of that scheme and the other schemes that are out there that can offer offer that support. So looking ahead, what are some of the key advocacy goals for Epilepsy Action in addressing the intersection of epilepsy, the cost of living and related policy changes? So, yeah, we, we need to see proper support for all disabled people from the government, whether, whether that's through ensuring people can access benefits or employment support. Um, we have a petition ongoing um, at the moment calling on the government to increase the fines companies face for discriminate, discriminating against employees with epilepsy. Um, we found recently in a recent survey we did that 60% of people with epilepsy said they had experienced um, unequal treatment or discrimination at work because of their condition. And even 42% of employers admitted that they would be inclined not to hire someone with epilepsy to save their company and um, potential challenges, even, even though they knew that that was discrimination. Um, so we need employers to change their attitudes uh, and ensure that um, people with epilepsy are able to work without the fear of being discriminated against, uh, being bullied or being treated unfairly just because of their condition. Um, and as a charity as well, we're launching our new strategy, which outlines our goals to 2030, uh, including the aim that by 2030, everyone in the UK will understand what epilepsy is and how they can support people with uh, people who live with epilepsy. And that will include the work around uh, addressing those kind of attitudes from employers, the stigma and the misconception around the condition that I think leads to so many of the problems that people with epilepsy face. That's uh, great, uh, Daniel. Um, thank you for coming on to our show today. I think uh, that has highlighted, you know, this uh, this aspect of the disability, um, particularly epilepsy. And in this, uh, you know, when there is uh, cost of uh, living has increased so much, it is becoming more and more difficult. And I think that this would highlight uh, to to our listeners and may help, uh, you know, people who are going to benefit out of it. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. So that was uh, Daniel Jennings, who's the head of the Epilepsy Actions Policy and Campaigns work, uh, lobbying MPs, government, and other organizations to improve the lives of people with epilepsy. So obviously they are they're doing a, a good job, and uh, hopefully that uh, this conversation would help further to highlight uh, this aspect of the disabilities and people with epilepsy may be hel- helped. You're very much right. Um, and I think as as we discuss, the situation under course is the need for more comprehensive support system. And, you know, this includes advocating for more inclusive insurance policies and, uh, you know, government interventions to subsidize critical healthcare services and equipment. Uh, as we were discussing before, it is a call uh, to action for a more, you know, empathic and supportive approach to ensure that no one is left behind uh, in assessing the healthcare they need, irrespective of their financial circumstances. Uh, we have two guests. They have discussed. One of the guests has discussed. Uh, you know, the, the the healthcare sector. What kind of problems they're facing? And you know, Daniel has discussed again uh, the 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 epilepsy and the cost living problem uh, the, the the people are facing. To you know. Discuss further. Disability and employment is one of the issue where which our guest has touched. That uh, even though the they are doing the jobs, they are they have been paid less, and you know how many opportunities are there. You know, that's that's need to be discussed. And 
you know, when you discuss this, the economic barriers and employment challenges faced by individuals with disabilities, you know, it is essential to consider, you know, the married ways in which the current economic climate, you know, exacerbates their struggles. The fluctuating economy presents significant challenges for disabled individuals seeking employment. You know, economic uh, downturns often lead to job cuts and reduce hiring, disproportionately affecting those with disability. According to a report by the U.S. Bureau by Labor Statistics, the employment rate of disabled persons is significantly higher compared to the non-disabled. This gap highlights the vulnerability of disabled individuals in the job market, especially during economic instability. Finding employment that accommodates disability remains a major hurdle. Many workplaces lack of necessary infrastructure of flexibility to support the unique needs of disabled employees. As per the ADA National Network, a substantial number of workplaces still do not meet basic accessibility standard, making it challenging for disabled individuals to find suitable employment. So, you know, disabled workers often find themselves in lower paying jobs, irrespective of their qualification and skills. The disparity in wages adds to the economic strain faced by these individuals. So, you know, now I think we'll have another guest which we had before we had a pre-recording of that guest i would like to run the pre-recording and then we'll be back and we'll discuss uh this topic further that uh, what kind of difficulties disabled people are facing and what can be done to make a better place for them uh to live now we're going to listen to ismail kaji uh who uh, you know i've interviewed already and we'll listen to her, his interview and we'll be back right after that Today we have Ismail Kaji who is a Manscapes Parliamentary and Government Engagement Officer and Spokesperson on Learning Disability. He is passionate about making change and speaking to people like the government departments and the charity sector. Also he speaks with people with a learning disability whose voices are important to hear. He has worked on campaigns around the cost of living called Priced Out and forgotten i welcome ismail kaji in the show assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and thank you very much for joining us today thank you very much ismail to start off uh, can you share with us some personal experiences and challenges you have had uh, regarding managing your family's budgets so um for me every individual will be different but for me is um i set out like a spreadsheet and my budget um regarding helping my family's um budget and why we 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 can find it where, where it's um manageable but sometimes when it comes to when the rise of price of due of cost of living and sometimes also we have to sort of balance it out from paying the bills and and also paying your food essentials it can be quite very challenging at times and also when you're having a learning disability it can be quite difficult sometimes to um be more more sort of um managing the financial and managing lots of responsibilities how do you find your way around you know the, the spend of daily life with a disability during the cost of uh, living crisis okay so in a way i think 
sometimes it's in, in, in a way work, working with main cap and where I do a lot of my old work on the cost of living stuff it, it, it helps me in a way to have that bit more not bit of knowledge around the cost of living and also is sometimes uh, I have a, like a spreadsheet and I look at all my um, uh, spending costs and all things that need to be paid out each month so so for that it makes it a little bit easier but the challenging bit is that every year the price rise goes up so it's sometimes it's quite difficult to um, managing the way around that but even that everyone individual is different so it might my spreadsheet might work out for me but it won't this mean it will work out for people other people Mm, amazing. So what advice do you have for others with disabilities who are working towards managing their finances, you know, finances effectively? So for me, I um, we have the Minka Helpline. So Minka Helpline is that can give um, advice to people about the, um, the, cost, the cost of living and maybe how to manage things or maybe our contacts around where they can get help from. Um, but yeah, and and also the main website as well. So we have a lot of our, our easy read documents that we can go through, and to make it manage it easier ways to understand when it comes to when it comes to information. But when it comes to like advice and stuff, uh, we put the helpline, and helpline can sort of help them around um, to help them their their cost of living and finances amazing you know uh, so you know in your role on the cost living group at uh, mancap what policy changes or improvements are you asking uh, you know for for to better support individuals with disabilities in the face of cost living crisis so so regarding the the uh, so we whilst we work on the, the government 150 pound disability cost of living payment. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I mean, it, it has sort of helped, but it's not enough. And I think Winkout and myself having the learning disability, we want to do, we want to tell the, the government to do a lot more than what they've given. So it's, it's, it's appreciated that they are helping, but it's not helping enough because sometimes there's, there's a lot of families have to tackle around and choosing whether they have to pay the bills or whether they have to look after their um, well-being when it comes to food essentials. Because if they are skipping meals, then then that, that's a better effect for their health. So it's really important that the, the government needs to do a lot more than what they're doing now. Very much right. Indeed, I think uh, they should look into it. You know, in uh, at, the, at last... In what ways can the wider general public, you know, empower and include individuals with disabilities in discussions and, you know, uh, in decisions to do with the cost living and money matters? So, I recently met with politicians and people with energy, um, energy suppliers, talking to them about um, accessibility information. So, companies, uh, sometimes they don't give accessible information. The bills can't be accessible enough. Or maybe not at all, and sometimes, like from my personal side of it, having learning disability, I find it hard 
even though I'm working with Mencap and uh, I'm, got, I'm talking about politicians and do I've got a lot of knowledge about um, learning media and accessibility. Sometimes it's when it comes to companies and when they're not doing what they should be doing, like putting accessible bills, information put out on the website, and when talking to customers over the phone, they're not giving not accessibility um, information and they're not really communicating in a way they should do. So where, uh, where, I, where I say and where Maincap says that there should be companies it should be more 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 friend and disability friendly and people friendly as well because I think when it comes to people friendly it means that they have to include disabilities as a one society they should they should not be sort of exclude them in, in, as a different group because a disability is a label but it's, it's what comes as I believe is the person first not to Indeed, um, you're very much right, uh, Ismail. Uh, thank you very much, Ismail, uh, you know, for joining us today and giving us insight uh, of, uh, you know, that the work you have been doing is amazing. You know, may God bless you. And I hope I mean, our listeners uh, who have listened to us, there, are, there must be some people who are in need of it and hopefully they will uh, be in contact with you. Again, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Have a nice evening. Peace be upon yeah, you. Thank you. So welcome back after the uh, pre-recorded uh, interview of Ismail Ghaji, who has uh, uh, you know, mentioned how he is, uh, you know, what, is, is, is what kind of work he's been doing. Now we're going to move uh, to our uh, guest, uh, who is, uh, you know, uh, Christina McGill. Uh, hopefully, uh, she's with us. Hello there. Uh, hi, Christina. Before I start off, I'd like to give your intro. Uh, Christina is the Director of Social Impact and External Affairs at the Habintech Housing Association. Habintech are a social housing provider which aid in supporting in building accessible homes. Thank you very much, Christina, for joining us today. No problem. It's great to be here. Uh, firstly, can you tell us a bit about uh, Habintech? What are the main goals, aims of your organisation? Yeah, thank you. And so Habintech has been around for about uh, 52, 53 years. And really we were um, founded to um, demonstrate that um, it's possible for accessible homes uh, to be provided in, in mainstream housing settings so that disabled people and non-disabled people can live side by side as neighbours. And so for 50 years, we've been building and running accessible properties alongside um, uh, uh, mainstream um, housing um, and enabling neighbours to come and go into each other's homes and to build that community spirit. Um, yeah, And we have around 3,500 homes um, all, all across England, from the, the far south to the, to the far north. So in the co in context of uh, cost of living crisis, how does the mm. Habitat Housing Association work to ensure that individuals with disabilities especially have you know, affordable and accessible housing options? Well, I suppose there's two ways really that we have an impact on um, disabled people's access to affordable housing. One way is that we've always tried to um, demonstrate to the housing sector and to decision makers, policy decision makers, 
that accessible housing is a really valuable asset and that by providing it you can um, provide a much more inclusive society and you can uh, have a, it's, it's a really cost-effective resource so one one area is that we encourage national and local government to do what they can to plan to build more accessible homes and adaptable homes so that disabled people have a good chance of getting the home that they need in the right kind of type of housing and very often that might be social social housing and affordable homes so that's what we do in a kind of you know lobbying national government and then within our own organization with our own tenants um, we try to make sure that people are supported to make sure that their housing costs are covered so that might mean for disabled people for example we have a um, relationship a, a partnership with disability rights uk um, where we can make sure that our tenants are getting all the benefits that they're entitled to um, we provide a lot of information and tips on kind of managing household budgets and uh, eating cheaply heating your home efficiently as efficiently as possible so that you're you know not spending as, um, you know, through the roof on your energy costs and we also have some support funding available so that if tenants um, are hit with an unexpected bill or something breaks down um, in their home like a washing machine if they can't afford that at that moment in time then, then they can apply to us for some support with that with that outlay. Oh, great, great work you're doing. So beyond providing, you know, accessible housing, how does Habintech foster community integration for residents with disabilities and other backgrounds? And what role does this uh, play in their overall well-being? Mm-hmm. I think that, that notion of sort of independence and integration has a massive impact on people's well-being, doesn't it? And I think that I've heard a lot of stories um, of Habintech tenants where as soon as they move into a property that's more accessible for them, their whole well-being and mental health is uplifted because they feel more independent, they're more self-empowered, they can go about their daily tasks inside the home with greater independence and do it when they please rather than waiting for somebody to help them. So I think that the accessible home is the heart of it. Um, being able to get out and about easily, um, go and come and go as they please from their home because it's step-free. It's a sim- simple, simple thing like that, but that can have a big impact on someone's ability to get out and play a part in their community so the, the accessible home is the heart of it and the accessible community environment is very important in that as well um you know i recently heard from a new tenant that moved into a hub and take property who said you know having the accessible home was fantastic but then also in her scheme as she was living there were some community activities going on simple things coffee morning get together once a week that she really appreciated it was enabling her to start to rebuild her social life having not really had one for a very long time living in somewhere less accessible um you know in schemes up and down the country we've got different kinds of things going on coffee mornings maybe cooking classes different kinds of craft activities that where people ever anyone can join in and and get together and i think that's a really great way of kind of community building you know across different different characteristics disability age and all the rest of it amazing amazing uh, you know at the end what are the other main challenges of providing accessible housing during the current cost of living crisis especially for elderly and disabled tenants and how do you continue to support tenants with these issues yeah i mean i think that the cost of living crisis has really disproportionately affected and does disproportionately affect disabled people because living as a disabled person is inherently more expensive um, than for non-disabled people and families that don't have disabled members. So it's really important that we keep very um, 
aware of the different kind of impacts that are have, things are having on people and how things can change very very quickly so you know we know that the the cost of heating is is going up the different trying to keep abreast of all the different um schemes that have been on the cards for the last year how they're changing giving people information about what kind of money and subsidies they can expect from the government from central government um making sure people are up to speed with that and know what to anticipate but also being sensitive to the fact that things can change very quickly so you know somebody is hit with a higher than they were expecting energy bill you know how can we how can we support that person um how can we make sure that we're there to listen to their their concerns if they're worried about um uh, meeting paying their rent but also that we know our know our tenants well enough that you know if we spot somebody who's in in a, in in great hardship that we can step in and say look we'll you know we'll be able to help you with that that particular energy bill or you know we can we can pay for you to get some groceries this week if you're you know you're you're really really pushed and i think having that awareness of how easily things can change um for different households and particularly elderly and disabled people and having those grassroots connections to our tenants is really really valuable in helping us to respond so could you please uh, share with our listeners how can how can they how they can contact you and where about you are you currently working in London or in all over the UK? Yeah, so um we have um as I say three and a half of about 3300 properties and um the ones in the farthest south are all the way down in Cornwall. We have quite a lot in um the Bradford area uh, and the north east as well so Hull, Stockton, those kinds of areas. Um uh, if people are interested in seeing if there are properties available they can check out that on our website which is www.habintech.org.uk uh, and we have a, a find you know a, a search button on there where people can search for um, properties that are available or waiting lists that are open so that's good and also we're always looking for people who are interested in campaigning with us for accessible homes um so if there are any of your listeners who are um uh, who who would be interested in joining the joining the call for more accessible housing um they can find um, details of that on our website as well uh great uh, christina thank you much uh, for joining us today and hope our listeners have benefited from your talk uh, it was pleasure speaking with you have a nice evening thank you so much bye bye thank you bye so you were listening to Christina McGill who is a director of social impact and external affairs at the Habintech Housing Association um you know Habintech are a social housing provider which aid in supporting in building accessible homes so in discussing the economic barriers and employment challenges faced by individuals with disabilities it's essential to consider the myriad ways in which the current economic climate exacerbates their struggles the fluctuating economy presents significant challenges for disabled individuals seeking employment economic downturns often lead to job cuts and reduced hiring disproportionately affecting those with disabilities according to a report by the US Bureau of Labor Statistics the unemployment rate for disabled persons is significantly higher compared to the non-disabled The gap highlights the vulnerability of disabled individuals in the job market especially during economic instability. Finding employment that accommodates disabilities remains a major hurdle. Many workplaces lack the necessary infrastructure or flexibility to support the unique needs of disabled employees as per the ADA national network a substantial number of workplaces still do not meet basic accessibility standards making it challenging 
for disabled individuals to find suitable employments. Disabled workers often find themselves in lower-paying jobs irrespective of their qualifications and skills. The disparity in wages adds to the economic strains faced by these individuals. These employment challenges contribute to a cycle of financial instability. With limited job opportunities and wage inequality, disabled individuals often struggle to meet the rising costs of living. This situation not only affects their economic well-being, but also hinders their ability to access necessary health care, further impacting their overall quality of life. So addressing these employment barriers requires a concerted effort from governments, employers, and communities to create more inclusive workplaces, enforce equitable wage policies, and provide robust support systems that can mitigate these challenges. It's not just about creating job opportunities, it's about fostering an environment where disabled individuals can thrive and contribute effectively to the workforce. Yes, you're much right. One other thing, uh, you know, how we can help, you know, these systems, including welfare programs and disability benefits, are essential in elevating the economic strain on disabled individuals. However, their effectiveness often falls short. The need for a comprehensive, you know, reevaluation of these system is evident, ensuring they, you know, adequately support those in need. This mirrors the Islamic principles of ensuring justice and support for all, as stated in the Holy Quran, that surely all believers are brothers. So make peace between brothers and fear Allah that mercy may be shown to you. It's chapter 49, verse 11. You know, advocacy plays a key role in driving policy changes for a more inclusive society. And community support and activism are, you know, vital in the endeavor reflecting the Islamic ethos of mutual mutual support and kindness. As the Quran says, O you believe, let not one people drive another people who may be better than you, nor let women, you know, drive other women who may be better than they. And defame not your own people, nor call one another by nicknames. Bad indeed is evil reputation after the profession of belief. And those who repent not are the wrongdoers. So chapter 49, verse 12. In, you know, uh, inclusion and equality in Islam, the story of Hazrat Jalabib, Raziyallahu ta'ala anhu, is a profound example of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace be upon him approach to inclusion and equality. Despite his physical appearance and poverty, Jolabib anhu was treated with dignity and respect, you know, showcasing the Islamic principle that everyone deserves kindness and fair treatment. The Prophet peace be upon him actions, you know, exemplify how we should not judge based on disability but recognize everyone's potential. When Hazrat Jalabi, uh, peace be upon him, um, may Allah be pleased with him, was martyred in battle, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him put his hand on his knee and said, "This one is of me, and I am of him." So the Quran also emphasizes the importance of recognizing and honoring one another irrespective of differences as highlighted in the verse that all mankind, we have created you from a male and a female and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another. Verily the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah the Almighty is he who who is most righteous among you. Chapter 49 verse 14 
So various initiatives and movements are working towards reducing the disproportionate impact on disabled community. Their goals you know, resonate with Islamic values of compassion and striving for a just society where every individual's need are met. So, in the, you know, we are approaching the um, end of our program today. So, in conclusion, addressing the economic and social disparities faced by disabled individuals requires a holistic approach that combines improved social support, active advocacy, and a shift in social attitudes. Guided by Islamic teachings on equality, kindness, and the importance of caring for all members of society, we can work towards a more inclusive and supportive future for everyone. So, so basically, you know, in in this difficult uh, uh, you know period of time where everybody, um, you know, financially everybody is suffering, those who are already um, you know disabled and they are. Uh, having difficult time because of their physical and mental disability, um, it becomes further difficult for them that they have to <clears throat> go through the financial crisis as well, and they do not have the enough uh, financial support from the government, and they also need a lot of uh, advocacy where you know th- they can convince the government that they do need a rise in their benefits what they are given because they are not um, adequate for their uh, for their basic needs. So uh, today we have discussed the disproportionate impact of the cost of living crisis on people with disabilities, and I hope that this uh, this has uh, highlighted the need for the, for those who are responsible to come to help with these pe- for these people. And uh, Voice of Islam Radio is uh, at the forefront of. Uh, providing this information to the people how and uh, you have uh, heard the expertise from people who are in this field and who are trying to help and what are the problems we are facing so hopefully that uh, that program will uh, will benefit people so th- that's where we conclude our today's program and uh, we uh, uh, remain with us for our next hour and with the topic in the next hour we will be dis- um, discussing uh, that is about the organ donation, particularly in children, which is required. So uh, please stay with us. Uh, after a short break, we'll join you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and blessing of Allah be upon you all. Welcome once again here in Drive Time Show. You're listening to Anika Rahman, and I'm joined by Dr. Taik Pajwa here from London Studio. Wassalam. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Wa alaikum assalam. Peace be upon you and all our listeners. Yeah, I think we have another uh, very interesting topic uh, today and the second hour, which is organ donation um, and uh, children waiting for a transplant, transplant uh, for an organ. So it, it, it is, uh, I think it's, it's something which is not very commonly known to people and people are not aware of this topic. So mm-hmm. that is why I think it has been brought up so that it's highlighted and people realize that so many people are waiting and particularly the children donation of the organs they need and, and they're just waiting for donors. And particularly in the statistics which have shown that people who have been approached for an organ donation for their children, obviously this is a very, very sensitive topic. And people are, you know, when you when the parents who are responsible and they are asked for a donation from their children, 
um, who are uh, you know in, in that stage where you know they they, they are likely to um, not live any longer and to ask for a donation. Uh, it is because it is emotionally very very sensitive time. So um, out of you know uh, you know people who have been approached, they say that it's only fifty two percent who have actually um, uh, permitted it. So it's it's, uh, it's just to raise the awareness that people that it is it is something which is important is something which one can do without losing anything mm-hmm. and uh, just to um, just to give the permission that the organs can be don- donated and uh, and that's how um, it can help people and uh, the purpose of our life basically is to to for, to to live for each other and to um, to help whatever we can to whatever extent and here um, is something where we can we we are not losing anything and we just we can help other other people indeed you're very much right i think it's a difficult time but uh, the raising awareness is necessary that you know you can save uh, somebody life uh, a while i know uh, this difficult time even then uh, the child can help uh, someone else uh, as uh, Dr. Tariq Bajaj mentioned we'll be discussing organ donation, especially you know children waiting uh, for a transplant. We'll be having some guests uh, on this particular topic to discuss and giving us give us more insight of uh, you know the need uh, of uh, d- d- donation and if they have any uh, you know uh, associations which are working on it, they will be giving some insight how they're working and what kind of need is there for uh, the for, for the organ donation. Of course, you can also call us on 0208-687-7878 and share your views on it. And you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK and visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk. So, you know, in, in, in a world where life expectancy has increased tremendously over the last century because of new technology and, you know, the medical procedures, we find humanity ever pushing the boundaries on what it can you know do to prevent loss of life where possible so in particular organ donation has become the you know optimal treatment for many organ specific diseases resulting in an increase in a number of people who could be saved by organ donors organ donation of course a difficult conversation to have but it is a necessary topic that often goes unaddressed Organ donors are, you know, of a vital importance. One single donor can save up to nine lives. So see, imagine, you know, it's just one person. It's a difficult time. The person is, uh, won't be with us anymore. But while he's leaving, he can save nine lives. So how important is to discuss, uh, to, to, to donate you know, uh, the, the organs. So over 230 children in the UK urgently required life-saving organ transplants. Many of these children rely on parents of other children consenting to organ donation during times of profound sadness and personal grief. So the discussion aims to highlight the crucial importance of, uh, you know, organ donation and current campaigns are effectively working to raise awareness but about organ donation and its significance. The new campaign, you know, Waiting uh, to Live, aims to encourage parents and families to consider organ donation 
and you know it is hoped register themselves and their children as donors uh, in 2021 22 as dr tariq was mentioned in the beginning just 52% of families who were approached about organ donation gave consent for their child's organ to be donated in this regard the holy prophet of islam peace be upon him has stated that whosoever helps another will be granted help from allah the almighty putting great importance again on serving mankind so at the moment you know in uk the statistics they show there's over 230 children and they urgently required life saving organ transplants but obviously they're just waiting for somebody to help them and and it is their their life depends on that so just waiting for somebody to be kind enough to so that they can um sort of permit their their children who are you know the, because we we uh, obviously they do they do have the infant deaths where where it is uh, not possible to save the lives of those infants and uh, if if the children if the parents can sign this uh, document that they are happy to donate the organs of their their children and that would be helpful for these people and that can save lives so um obviously you know these children who are waiting for that and uh, particularly this this topic of organ donation for kids um it's not often talked about and as it is a topic that's very very hard to talk about mm, as i mentioned earlier that the parents are in such a situation that they are grieving and uh, during that period it is definitely difficult to take the consent from them or even asking for them it's uh, um but if the people are aware beforehand that this is what is something which is required they would they would they would like come out and they would actually uh, look for where to sign beforehand and so that they can be this is something which which can be useful so in a bit to raise vital awareness of the need for more child organ donors a powerful campaign has been launched that will see the children transformed into handmade dolls that will be placed across the country so this is uh, this is a campaign which is a, a new campaign which has to been launched on the 21st of november and its primarily objective is to stimulate open conversations regarding pediatric organ donation uh, it focuses on encouraging parents to actively think and register their children for organ donation the campaign aims to adopt awareness and initiate meaningful discussions surrounding this crucial topic um now just about these handmade dolls uh, it's a significant element of the campaign involves the creation of over 230 handmade dolls so remember this is the number of children who are waiting for an organ donation in uk so these dolls are the collaborative efforts of more than 140 makers contributing to a diverse and impactful representation many of these dolls are crafted in the likeness of real children currently on the organ transplant waiting list every doll will have a badge featuring qr codes that direct individuals to a campaign site developed by the wonderman thompson team this site enables users to listen to the narratives of waiting children and register their own children on the nhs organ donor register each doll serves as a powerful symbol representing an actual child in need of a life-saving transplant aiming to show the urgency and human stories behind the statistics in a sense the campaign is a comprehensive and emotionally charged effort to shed light on the critical issues 
of organ donation. The Holy Quran says, O people of Islam, you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you have been raised to serve others. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. That has been taken from chapter 3, verse 111. So now we have our first guest for today's show. Um, you know, <clears throat> Angie Scales with us. Uh, who is pediatric lead nurse for pediatric and uh, neonatal donation in NHS blood and transplant? I welcome her in the show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, good evening. Uh, thank you for joining um, today's show. Uh, to start off, could you please tell us a little about a little bit about yourself and what you do as a lead nurse? Yes, of course. So um, my background is nursing um, and I worked for um, many years, 16 years at Great Ormond Street Hospital in their paediatric intensive care unit. And I've worked with NHS blood and transplant for the last 13 years. Mm -hmm. um, and seven of those really specifically looking at paediatric and neonatal organ donation within um, NHSBT. Uh, and what, what I do really is quite a broad job, but is, is really look and make sure that we do everything that we can to increase organ donation and transplantation of organs for, uh, for children and from children. So that may be supporting families to consider organ donation as an option um, and, and also ensuring all of our processes work uh, for children. Um, as well as the wider population. So that may be education, speaking to families, supporting our specialist nurses, but also looking at our, how our processes work um, and how we support bereaved families and bereaved children after the death of a loved one. So there's quite a lot to it. Uh, indeed, and very much right. Have you seen an increase in organ donors since the you know, opt-out system come in place in 2020? And how effective do you think the system is? So it's early days in terms of the opt-out. Um, you never see results uh, quickly. But what we have seen is an increase in the public awareness. And obviously the uh, legislation was released during that pandemic and that really challenging time for everyone, uh, but also in terms of uh, challenging time for organ donation and transplantation. But one of the things to remember is that the law doesn't directly affect children. Um, um, but what we do know is that uh, it has raised awareness and we want people to gain greater awareness of um, the fact that children can donate and the importance of donation and transplantation and how life-saving it is. And that's really what we're seeing through the Waiting to Live campaign that you, you, t you talked about. So in your experience... Uh, you know, how do you manage the delicate balance between respecting the family's wishes and the urgency of organ donation for pediatric patients? I know. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I think for me, it's about giving families choices and options about what happens at the end of uh, their child's life um, and making sure that they know the benefits of organ donation and the difference that transplantation can make. Um, because often you, you don't realise that unless you have that discussion. Um, and our specialist nurses, um, you know, can talk through that with families, but also address any concerns that they have. I think it, it also remains a family choice and we need to remember that. And it has to be right for families too. Um, and no family should be, feel pressured um, to consent. Yeah, you're very much right, indeed. 
uh, it's, it's a difficult time for them, uh, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But what we do know is families tell us how positive that organ donation can be at a really, really difficult time for them. So, you know, they face the death of their child, but actually there's a really positive outcome from that. It really helps people with their grieving um, in the weeks, months and years after uh, after their child's death. Mm. Right. So moving forward, what do you think is the most effective way to encourage parents to consider organ donation? So I think awareness is really important through campaigns like the Waiting to Live campaign. No parent wants to think about the death of a child um, or their child dying. And actually what the campaign does is allow parents to have space to think about organ donation for themselves, for families um, and for their children, hopefully in in quite a safe environment and non-threatening way. And we hope that through this, they will it will encourage families to talk together um, and to include children in those discussions. So it's very easy to have a conversation or a thought about yourself, but actually thinking about your children um, is harder. And actually what we know is when families do discuss this together, if ever, you know, they find themselves in a position where they have to make this decision, then those choices um, are easier. Um, we definitely know that. So we just encourage people to have those conversations. Make sure you in- include children um, and and record that decision, including for your children. Yes, um, you're very much right. I think it's uh, a very dire need uh, for uh, donation. And I think that there's a way, I think everyone should learn how to raise awareness as well, yeah. especially with the uh, parents. Uh, thank you very much, Angie, for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you and hope our mm-hmm. listeners had got some kind of awareness and hopefully we keep doing our work from our side thank you oh, much. thank you thank you very no, much thank for you for asking us. me thank you okay. have a nice Good evening night. bye you too bye-bye so you were listening to angie scales who's a pediatric lead nurse for pediatric and uh, neonatal donation in nhs blood and transplant so earlier we were talking about this uh, organ donation system and the scheme, this new campaign where, you know, they're, they're making the dolls and making people aware of, you know, the, the need for organ donation. So uh, the, the UK uh, actually has an opt-out organ donation system which came into effect in England from May 2020. So in which what happens is that you, you have a form because you are considered to be um, to be willing for the donation of the organs, although it is, again, it is asked from the parents uh, whether they, they they are happy with the organ to be donated. But uh, also if it has, you know, this, this form contains an option that you can opt out if you do not want uh, the, the um, organs to be donated, you can opt out of it. Well, normally it will be considered that you would uh, you would be happy with that, although, um, you know, the system's purpose is to increase the number of available organs, and the opt-out system means that all adults in England are now considered to have agreed to be an organ donor when they die unless they have recorded a decision not to donate. So that is what is called opt-out. So this does not mean that your organs will automatically be taken if you don't don't opt out. Your family would always be involved before donation takes place. So it's very simple to record your decision on the NHS organ donor register online. 
And uh, as regards, you know, obviously there are also religious impacts and people have like misunderstandings that, you know, it is not Islamic, it's something which is against the religions. Uh, however, Islam puts great emphasis on the importance of serving humanity at every opportunity you can. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 111, I read this earlier as well from the Holy Quran, which comprehensively covers this concept of service to humanity and it states, O people of Islam, you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you have been raised to serve others. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. So, hence, in according to the teachings of Islam, you will remain the best as long as you are service-minded, promote good and promote the welfare of the society. If you fail to do this, you no longer have a right to boast of the superiority of Islam, a society which is insensitive to the suffering of other human beings and is not always inclined to serve the cause of humanity cannot be described as an Islamic society, no matter how much it adhered to other aspects of Islamic teachings. Um, so I remember one of the sayings of, of the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ulam Ahmed of Qadiyan. You know, he writes that, and in, in his teachings of uh, Islamic teachings, he's explaining, he says that if your neighbor who is a Hindu, who is not of your religion, if his, his house is on fire and you not you do not take a step to extinguish the fire, you don't come out, you have no relationship to me, you are not considered as a Muslim because you are not doing what uh, according to the Islamic teachings. So that is, uh, you know, that, that is a true Islamic teaching. So, um, so we, we have been talking earlier about this, or this organ shortage crisis, particularly regarding the children earlier. And uh, we'll, we'll further explore whether the only thing that can help is an increase in organ donors or if there is anything else we can do. So, so you know, yeah, the kidneys, um, as we we're discussing, are the most needed and most commonly transplanted organ. Uh, new research presented at uh, European Society for Organ Transplantation, Transplantation, you know, ESOT Congress 2023, demonstrates that uh, neonatal kidney transplantation can offer a game-changing solution to the pressing organ shortage crisis. To you know, assess uh, the feasibility of neonatal organ donation, researchers analyzed neonatal mortality in the United States and the long-term development of these kidneys after transplantation, as well as the ethical and social considerations surrounding the procedure. The study revealed that out of the 21,000 infants who lost their lives in 2020, more than 12,000 could have been considered as viable organ donors. Neonatal kidneys have demonstrated catch-up growth and excellent long-term you know, performance 25 years, exceeding that of living donors. Current transplantation techniques have also proved to be safe and effective for neonatal kidneys. Understandably, there are some ethical and social challenges using this method compared to adult organ donation. It is you know, a tough process for families and uh, caregivers to make the decision to donate the organs of their newborns. According to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you know, Islamic teachings with regards to organ donation are found to be quite clear. 
clear cut with Islam putting a great you know emphasis on the <clears throat> preservation of human life in particular the opt out system would actually seem quite favorable as it would become a means to save more lives surah maida uh, the chapter 5 of the holy quran verse 33 allah the almighty states whosoever kill a person unless it be for killing a person or for creating disorder in the land it shall be as if he had killed all mankind and whose gave life to one it shall be as if he had given life to all mankind so the beauty of this verse shows just how gracious allah the almighty is in the eyes of allah if you were to even save one life allah is ready to reward you for saving all mankind hey <clears throat> we going to listen to one of the audio where uh, to understand more that what islam teaches about donating the donating you know organs in islam it is permissible in fact it should be encouraged any act of beneficence is in spirit to islam it is in fact islam's purpose of creation to be beneficent to others to be of goodness to others to help and serve others because the holy quran tells you kum tum khaira ummatin ukhrijat lin nas you are the best of the people why ukhrijat lin nas because you are for the service of mankind so as long as you serve the mankind you remain the best as long as you are playing havoc with the mankind and become a source of danger you become the worst so this is why ahadrat sallallahu alaihi wasallam talking of a distant future said ulamaohum sharru man tahta adhim isma they couldn't have belonged to this umma which is mentioned in the holy quran which says the very best and the other uh, holy prophet the founder of islam peace be upon him describes the ulama of this very umma as sharru man tahta adhim isma the very worst under the um parchment of heaven why because this is the decisive factor ukhrijat lin nas you remain the best as long as you serve the mankind you become the opposite if you become the opposite in service instead of serving them if you become a source of danger and trouble to them then you become the worst so anything which is good can never be opposed by islam which is truly in essence good but one thing which must be remembered in principle is this that life cannot be sacrificed to death it is always death which can be sacrificed to life and relatively this applies to every stage in between so if the donor runs a danger of uh, uh, losing his own uh, organs or uh, losing his life in that process that is not permissible yeah but that's mostly after death or when the doctor oh, that's what this is what i'm saying this is why i make made it very clear that it is not permissible to put a life into danger for an experiment which may or may not succeed that's all so a value which is in hand which is superior value cannot be sacrificed for an inferior value or a possible value but at the same time if for instance that a child requires a kidney mother can give one of her kidneys but if the mother has only one kidney however deeply she may love the child islam would not permit her 
to part with that kidney because then it would amount to suicide. So within the four walls of these conditions, it is permissible to help others through giving donating organs. to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we were listening uh, to the uh, the Khalif where he is mentioning that, of course, you know, donating organs, it's allowed in Islam. And I think we should encourage ourselves and our, you know, family members and raise awareness that wherever we can donate uh, the, you know, uh, organs, we should do so because eventually by you know a, a one person can save nine persons life uh you know if he donates uh his organs or her organs and i think for especially we're discussing about children and again it's something which need to be uh you know informed people or parents beforehand they should have a normal or general awareness within the society rather than on the point where they are emotional where they are saddened is better to raise awareness well before time so if you know, um, somebody can donate it if, on the time so they, they are able to, rather than, you know, explaining to them that time, parents are very much saddened and it's very hard for them to to overcome their emotions and agree to donate their, uh, you know, all the, the, their children's organs. Now we're going <clears> to <throat> move to our uh, another guest, Yasin Shah, who is a cousin of Uqba Muhammad, who is suffering from stage 5 chronic kidney disease. And, li- and looking for a kidney donor. So I welcome Yasin Shah on the show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Wa alaikum assalam wa barakatuh. Thank you very much for having me on the show, brother, to begin with. Uh, Zakumullah. Uh, Yasin, uh, could, can you share you know, more about Uqba's health journey and the, the challenges um, you know, she has faced since birth? I can, certainly. Um, well, Uqba from birth has had multiple health conditions, unfortunately. Mm. Um, those have ranged from things such as galactosemia, a, meta- a metabolic uh, condition, uh, global developmental delay. She's had numerous allergies, right eye congenital ptosis, and from a very young age, she's also had to be tube-fed at an age of six months, and this was due to the numerous al- allergies I mentioned before. Now, unfortunately, I believe now, we're cresting three years ago, she was also diagnosed with chronic kidney disease, which is um, the the issue which is most important to us uh, to us now, essentially. Mm-hmm. So how has Ukba's you know, diagnosis impacted her life, daily life, and you know, that of her family? Well, as you mentioned, brother, um, Ukba currently has 
stage five chronic kidney disease. Mm. This has meant that um, she's had to be back and forth to the hospital quite a lot. Um, hospital being based in Leeds and Oprah being based in Bradford. At current, she's had to have top-up dialysis sessions uh, because of high potassium levels in Oprah's body. Mm. And these are for three times a week, four-hour sessions. And when the potassium seems higher, she's had to have more sessions as well. Um, as well as that, unfortunately, because of those previously mentioned health conditions, she also still has to make appointments to other hospitals and GP practices to take care of that. And in terms of a, an impact on her daily life, Okwa, mashallah, tabarakallah, she still is a very uh, bright and a bubbly girl, very smart, kind of sassy little girl. Um, but one of the things she's not been able to do due to the chronic kidney disease and the fact that she's doing dialysis is um, one of her favorite activities, uh, swimming, which she can't do because of risk of infection now. Mm. So how, how old is Ukba? So Ukba is currently 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in, in what ways has Ukba's family you know, tried to find suitable donors so far and what challenges have they encountered in, in the process? Mm-hmm. Well, ourselves as a family, we've, we've appealed to numerous channels and uh, newspapers uh, the newspapers uh, posting articles on on the couple of occasions they um, they agreed to take up with stories on, and the the channels trying to push out the message on social media. Uh, there was even um, fortunately I don't know exactly when, but um, an interview maybe seven or eight months plus ago, um, where I was invited by BBC Look North uh, to do a TV interview and uh, talk to them about. Um, about Ukba's issue and ask the general public to to step forward. Mm. So we have we have made attempts. There have been alhamdulillah a couple of people who have stepped forward. Unfortunately, um, something such as kidney donor it's it's a complicated issue. There's mm. usually difficulties with the kidney tissue types, um, and with Ukba she has a, a rare blood type, blood type O. So. Those who have stepped forward so far, we haven't been able to find a match just yet. Hmm. Uh, you know, we, we also, you know, of course, the reason of having you here to, to raise awareness or, you know, so people can hear the voice if they, get, they are able to help in any way uh, to do mm-hmm. well. So, uh, you know, are there any misconceptions or barriers within the South Asian community regarding organ donation that the family has had to address? There's definitely, definitely large misconceptions. And mm. I, I think they're mostly rooted in um, like the culture we have as a South Asian community. Mm. Um, I, I heard you in the beginning speaking about how it's uh, beloved uh, to donate to save lives. And I'm um, sure you've probably mentioned it already. But the one uh, most important, I would say, um, religious perspective, the ayah in the Quran, which is that to save one life, it exists yeah. to save the yeah. whole of humanity, the whole of mankind. So we do have this misconception that, um, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us this body and we shouldn't damage this body. Mm. But with kidney donations, with blood donation, with whatever organ donation or skin cell donation, whatever type of donation it might be, these are medically safe procedures. They're done by doctors who, you know, have to be upheld to national, global, international kind of regulations. If it was unsafe to do so, if it was riskful to the person to do so, then of course it, it wouldn't be allowed to begin with. So there's 
as you mentioned, there's definitely misconceptions, definitely barriers. But I do want to tell our South Asian brothers and sisters that this is a very altruistic act. As Muslims, we believe uh, this is an act that will be loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed. Um, you know, then what messages does the family want to convey to people of different, you know, uh, ethnicities who might consider stepping forward as potential donors for Ukba? Mm-hmm. As a family, we, we urge all ethnicities to reach out in saving lives. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what ethnicity you're from. Uh, people could step forward after hearing this this radio interview appeal for, for Okba's situation. They, they could step forward and, um, you know, offer uh, themselves for, for, for testing to see if they're a match. And, you know, uh, maybe by Lazojo's um, plan, they're not a match for Okba, but they still may be able to save somebody else's life. You know, there's many, many people who are in Okba's situation, um, many different ages, many different ethnicities, and many different specific conditions where they've they've been straddled with multiple health challenges and they're, they're on this rocky road where it's, you know, some form of deterioration in their body. So as a message to the, the, the wider community, you know, whichever ethnicity, whichever background you are, I, I do feel it's important regardless to, to try and step forward and help people out. Hmm. Uh, you very much right. One other thing at the end, um, uh, Yasin, you have mentioned about the you know rare maybe blood group or you mentioned about the, the right match for Akbar. Could, do you have any further details to it uh, so our listeners uh, can listen if, if is there any someone? Of course, you need to check everything and match, but anything <laughs> or any further details you can give in, the, in that regard? Yeah, so um, with the rare blood type, in Okpa's case, it's blood type O. Uh, but as I mentioned, it's it's best to step forward, whatever the blood type. For Okpa's situation mm. and for other people's situation, they do relax the the kind of requirements depending on the severity of the person. Um, for instance, um, in Okpa's case, it's blood type O. But because she is at stage five of chronic kidney disease, they've relaxed to allow people with different types of blood group as well to try and see if they can match. Uh, in terms of um, suggestions uh, or any tips on how people can help, um, the best best way uh, to help Okpa specifically would be to get in touch with Leeds Hospital by the email that they have provided online. To help anyone else, it's just a case of getting in touch with your GP, or with your registered doctor, whoever that may be, and seeing what it is that you can assist with, whether it's donating blood, and whether it's putting yourself on an organ donation list. However you can help, at the end of the day, any help is better than no help. Yeah. Very much right, Yasin. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. We pray that uh, may God Almighty give a quick recovery to Akba and uh, may she find uh, a right match and may Allah give him uh, give her a long and healthy life. Thank you very much for joining Inshallah. us today. Jazakallah khair for having me, brother. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Please, peace be upon you. So you were listening to Yasin Shah, who is a cousin of Akba Muhammad, who is uh, suffering from stage 5 chronic kidney disease and looking for a kidney donor and uh, you must have uh, heard uh, you know Yasin he explained that uh, you know how important and uh, it is to donate and uh, what kind of need is there when people are in need of uh, you know donation if you can 
please do so. I is think even even on the NHS app, yeah. if you have it on on your phone, you can mm. go onto the yes, the organization yeah. option and just just can click that, and and that that will be helpful. Yeah. Again, you know, uh, Islam emphasizes that we should help one another. If you can save one life, we should do it. Uh, there's, there's nothing much to say. Uh, a lot of thing has been said. We have mentioned in the beginning. Uh, our guest has uh, mentioned as well. And I think again is is a matter of uh, raise awareness within the society. So one of the big obstacles when it comes to organ donation and transplantation, Anik, um, is the lack of education and awareness on the topic. Mm. So from the childhood, you know, this has to be some organized uh, um, teaching um, and so that people, children themselves are aware of it. So in 2021, learning about organ donation actually became part of the school curriculum in the United Kingdom. NHS Blood and Transplant produced a set of resources which teachers can use in their PSHE lessons, that's personal social health and economic lessons. So organizations teaching resources have been developed to help schools across the country to engage, uh, to engage 11 to 16 years olds on this important subject so students can make a difference and save lives. There are many other reasons why children should be educated about organ donations, uh, aside from the fact that it prepares them for the future, encourages family conversations and raises awareness about organ donations. Educating children will also help to reduce stigma. Education helps demystify organ donation, reducing societal stigma and fostering a supportive environment for those in need of transplants. It helps to build a culture of giving, instilling the idea of organ donation from a young age contributes to a culture of giving and community support, shaping future attitudes towards charitable acts. The sanctity of human life is described in chapter Al-Maida, the verse five, uh, so chapter Maida is chapter five, verse 32, which shows us the importance of organ donation. And it says, because of that, we decreed upon the children of Israel that whoever kills a soul, unless for a soul or for corruption done in the land, it is as if he had slain mankind entirely. And whoever saves one, it is as if he had saved mankind entirely. And our messengers had certainly come to them with clear proofs. Then indeed, many of them, um, even after that, throughout the land were transgressors. So again, here in this verse, again, it is the, um, the importance shown to saving lives. If you can help somebody, if you can save life of another person, then it would be, you know, it, it, it actually helps you because God is pleased with you and that is the purpose of your life. So indeed, uh, uh, you very much right, <coughs> Dr. Taik Bajwa. You know, at the end, the need of our condition uh, seems to be on the rise. As we discuss in depth, thoroughly, people are in need that we should, you know, donate organ. And, uh, you know, just as many lives that are, you know, being saved as a result of organ donation, a lot of lives are also lost as a result of shortage of organs. And one other thing I was mentioning, you know, with uh, uh, my co-presenter, Dr. Tariq Bajwa, that I know somebody who was my friend of mine, uh, who was a doctor himself, a GP, you know, he, I saw him helping people around whenever they need 
They used to visit even community member and anyone who needs help, regardless was a community member or not. You know, he had he was going through uh, the, the kidney problems. He was having uh, you know dialysis, and he was been looking for a donor for a long time, but he couldn't find it. And he has visited different countries to to find the right donor. And uh, I, I've spoken to him. He has been different. Uh, you know, countries, different um, areas of the world, so he can have the donor which matches. So I think it's again, it's a need uh, of uh, of organ donation, and we, we need to understand that if we can help some anyone, you know, if anybody is leaving this world, of course, difficult time is very a time where we cannot have these kind of discussions. But if the people you know who is who's with that uh, the person even understands that how important it is to donate organs or a person you know even though it is a difficult time for the family if they donate the organs that's how we you know a person can save so many lives as we mentioned in the beginning a person who donate he can save nine lives and uh, we're discussing about children and again the awareness is very much important and more awareness you know definitely needs to be raised on the topic of organ donation, particularly the need for organ donation for children. According to the teaching of Islam, a great emphasis is put on the importance of serving mankind, the founder of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, and Mahdi, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, may Allah be with him, states that my desire, my wish, and my objective is serving humanity. It is my job, my faith, my inspiration, and my way. With this note, I would like to, you know, thank to all our listeners who were with us for last two hours and must have, you know, got awareness through the the show we have done. I would like to thank the producers of today's show and the technical team working behind the scenes. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.